Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, Today, we're continuing our series uh, through the entire Bible, which is what we're doing all through 2024. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis uh, is a book that means in the beginning, the beginning, uh, and uh, and that's where we're starting. And so if you're looking for it, uh, you can find it at the beginning of your Bible or your app on your phone or uh, whatever you happen to be using today. Uh, So here's what we believe at Mercy Hill. We believe that Bible, uh, 66 books... It's divided into two separate sections. The New Testament, the Old Testament is written by 40 plus human authors. It's written over uh, several thousand years in multiple different genres. You find in the Bible historical narrative and you find poetry, you find letters. But all of those elements of the scripture are unified into one single story. One unified, complete story that starts at the beginning, goes all the way through to the end, a grand narrative or a grand epic. And we believe the story of the Bible centers around Jesus. And so this year, 2024, what we've decided to do is to grow together as a community of faith in our understanding of the big picture story of the Bible, how it all fits together. So we'd love, if you haven't joined us yet, for you to join us. You can do that in a few different ways. You can join us by being here on Sunday mornings, and I'm going to teach through the big story of the Bible to try to help you see how all the pieces fit together. But another, I I think, incredibly important way is for you to do a weekly or a daily reading plan uh, that we've laid out this uh, for the course of this year. We got some journals. They'll be uh, in the lobby. You can grab one of those, follow along. If it's your first time, if you haven't gotten one yet, and you're like, oh, I'm already two weeks behind, so I can't do it, you can do it. Just start where we are. It's going to be fine, all right? Um, and uh, you can maybe fill in some of the things that you miss later on. But the most important thing we believe about reading the Bible uh, is that you get to know God through reading the Bible. And so the habit of constantly coming to the Scripture is way more important than necessarily starting at the beginning of the reading plan. Make sense? Good. All right. Why is this important? Why is this an endeavor for us? It's important because um, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the Bible is a practical book about life. It is a textbook for the soul. It comes to us with a message about the very position in which we find ourselves. The reason that we believe this is so important is because the Bible story actually contains a story that impacts us in our lives. It's relevant to here and now. Now, the relevancy of the Bible, of the story, the scripture, isn't that it is keeping up with the Kardashians or that it teaches us how to gain more Instagram likes or that it speaks to the current college debt issues that many of us face. It's relevant because it speaks to, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, our souls. It tells us ancient, timeless truths that explain where we came from, who we are, and why the world that we live in is the way that it is. And so that's where we're picking up in the story today. Last week, we discovered that God, who is eternal, created everything that exists. He created a good world with good people who were created in his image, and he made a good place, the Garden of Eden, where he would dwell in a good relationship with his good people, that it was all good at the beginning. 
But we started this conversation last week, and if you're here today, I imagine you would agree with this. That is not our experience in the world. And frankly, it's not our experience with people. We don't often experience the goodness of the world and the goodness of other people. Our lives are full of suffering, pain, hardship, and difficulty. Our world is torn apart by greed, corruption, war, and strife. We see people struggling with poverty and sickness and loss. We look at ourselves, and if we're honest, we don't see complete and whole goodness. We find often in ourselves unhappiness, a lack of satisfaction, a feeling of purposelessness. We see in ourselves the grind of work and proving ourselves. We also, if we're honest, see a tendency inside of ourselves toward jealousy or envy, frustration and anger, pride, hatred. Which leads us to the question, then what went wrong? That's what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 3. First, verse 1, we meet a new character. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We find this new character has come into God's world in order to oppose God. This new character shows up on the scene to wreck God's good world, and to do that, he goes directly to God's people, the ones whom God created to know him and to dwell with him. Now, later in the scripture, we understand that the serpent actually has a name. His name is Satan, and that he is a spiritual being who has led a rebellion against God and has sent himself in opposition to God. And so in the story, this being, this spiritual being comes to Adam and Eve, God's created people whom we met last week in order to tempt them. Well, how does he do that? Well, we pick up in verse two. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any fruit in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The first thing that this creature, the spiritual being, Satan or the serpent does is he tempts the woman and he starts by the temptation, number one, to doubt God's word. Now remember back to Genesis 1 and 2. What was repeated in Genesis 1 and 2 over and over and over and over and over again? God spoke. The author is emphasizing the power behind God's word and the importance in what God says. And so God also, you remember from the previous chapter, spoke to the man and woman he created. He gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He spoke to them a purpose to subdue the earth. That phrase doesn't mean to dominate. The idea is to cultivate. So God looks at his people and speaks a purpose to them. Here's a good world. Make some more good stuff out of this good world. He spoke to them a restriction though, right? Give them one restriction. In the garden, there's all of these trees, but there's this one tree that's off limits for you. Everything else is yours, but this one tree. And so when we meet now Satan, who's tempting Adam and Eve, where does he start? Did God really say that? Is that really true? Am I understanding the story right? He starts to leverage their understanding of what God's saying into doubt. It's the same thing you and I face today. Remember, this is a practical book that is explaining ourselves to us. And today, very often, if we're honest with ourselves, where we get off track is by doubting what God has already said. 
by not believing that it could be true or we can or that we can trust what God has said. Now it continues, right? Verse four. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The second thing he does is a temptation to get them to doubt God's goodness. Do you see that phrase? For God knows. It's a lot of power there, right? What's he saying? He's saying, actually, the God that you've been dwelling with, he knows something you don't know. He's withholding something good from you. He's not good in his character. He doesn't have the best intentions for you. He doesn't have your best in mind. He is actively preventing you from doing something that's really good. He knows a secret and he's not letting you in on the secret. And we experience that as well, don't we? The temptation to doubt God's goodness towards us, to believe that God isn't good, that he doesn't care about us, that he's not going to provide what we need and he's not paying attention to what's going on in our lives. We also believe that God is withholding something good from us. That's why so many of us struggle with a biblical sexual ethic. We believe that can't be true. There's something else better for me. I can't trust God's word here. I need to trust myself, my experience, and what every commercial on TV tells me. This is why people steal. They don't believe that God's got their good in mind, that he wants to provide for them, rather they have to provide for themselves. This is why greed bubbles up inside of us. This is where it comes from. We don't think God is going to be good towards us. He's withholding from us. Then verse four, again, remember uh, the serpent says to the woman, you shall surely not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and what? You will be like God. The third temptation is the temptation to doubt our own or their own position. Something's wrong with you. Something's lacking in you. You're not complete. You're not everything you could be. You lack something. You could be so much more than what you are right now. Think about it. You're in this garden. You have no needs, no lack. Everything's provided for you. It's a beautiful place. God dwells with you. You function in perfect harmony with God and each other and God's creation. And there's the temptation. Oh, but that's not all. You're missing out on something. You could be like God. Satan shows up and says, friends, I feel so sorry for you, right? Here you are in this garden, completely unaware of who you could be if you could just shake yourself free from God. I can't believe that he would restrain you from your potential like he has. Does that sound familiar? We are also tempted to be like God. We want to be the ultimate decision makers. We want to be in control. We want other people to do what we say, including God. And pride bubbles up inside of us, and we think we know better and can do better without it. So how do they respond? They choose to disobey God's single command to them. His only restriction. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Just want to point out something really important, right? 
The temptation happens to both of them, okay? So just don't get into some weird, like, YouTube theology here, all right? Both of them are together. They both give in. They both sin. Now, notice this. How many times do you think they walk by that tree every day? You think they'd never seen that fruit before? You think they were shocked? Oh, that's where it is? Oh, my gosh. No, 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 no. For the first time, though, they saw that tree as a vehicle for them to get something better. They saw it differently. And so because they saw it differently, then they ate it and they acted differently. Now, here's the crazy part that I'm going to ask you to believe that the Bible teaches, and we will see it hashes out for the rest of the Scripture. That simple action of eating the fruit is the beginning of what is wrong with our world and what is wrong with us. The fracturing of the world begins with just eating fruit. So how is that even possible? Well, because it's actually much more than that. If the temptation is for them to doubt God's word, then the act of eating the fruit is a rejection of God's word. I will not listen to you anymore. If the temptation is to doubt God's character and his goodness, then eating the fruit is an indictment against God's character. I do not believe you are good, and I do not believe you want what is good for me. If the temptation is to be like God and not to understand our position as creators under a creator, then when they ate the fruit, it is a rebellion or an overthrow of God's authority. You don't own me. You don't control me. I don't have to bend a knee to you. This is a coup wrapped up in one simple action. It is saying the words from Invictus by William Ernest Henley to God. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You keep your hands off. You're not in control here anymore. This is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. That sin is not just doing something bad. But sin is an act of rebellion against God. It is a relational breach, a breaking of trust between us and God. It is a vandalization of God's good world. It is spraying graffiti off the goodness of what God has created. Saying no more. I'm going to tag this. This is now mine. And this, the Bible says, is what caused the fracturing of God's good world. When God's rule and reign over his creation has been challenged, it affects everything. It is a rejection of what is, uh, the rejection of God is what is wrong with our world and with us. So what happens? What are the consequences? The first consequence is God's good people are corrupted by sin. Check out verse 7. The eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What happens? Adam and Eve immediately realize that something is very wrong, that there's been a change. It's affected their self-perception. They believe they lack something now. They experience shame for the first time. The fall, this text I believe is teaching, affects our physical bodies. Remember that everything that God made had been called good, including what? Physical bodies. 
And for the first time, they look at each other and go, oh, there's something wrong with your body. And there's something wrong with my body. Our bodies become sources of shame instead of examples of God's goodness in his creation. It affects the way they see themselves and each other. Now they don't see themselves rightly because of sin. Now they, don't, they see themselves in a distorted way. What God had previously called good, now they're like, this cannot be good. J.C. Ryle says sin pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds. The understandings, the affection, the reasoning powers, the will are all more or less infected. And the corrupting power of sin in that moment infected Adam and Eve. And it spread throughout history all the way to us. The second thing that happens is God's good relationship with his people is severed by sin. Verse 8, they heard the sound then of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What's the picture we get at the end of chapter 2? This garden is God's good place. Well, this good God shows up and dwells with his good people, right? Now what happens? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So now, instead of a good relationship with a good God, that's fractured as well. It's been severed by sin. Now people hear God coming and what do they want to do? Let's get out of here. What if he sees us? They are filled with a sense of fear and guilt and shame at standing before God. So they run and they hide themselves. Remember, previously there'd been no shame or separation of their relationship with God. Now they're scared to be face to face with him. Later in the chapter, we see as part of their punishment, God kicks them out of the garden as an act saying, we no longer have the same relationship that we once did. We don't dwell together in the same way. So when sin enters the world, it severs our relationship with God. And this is true of every single one of us. That sin separates. And that sin is an offense first and foremost before God. So your sin and my sin separates us relationally from God. That's a major problem. Because if Genesis 1 and 2 are right, what were we made for? A relationship with God. Third thing that happens. Our good relationships with each other are damaged by sin. Check this out. Verse 11. God said to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Did you do the one thing that I told you not to do? Is there a rebellion here? And the man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Whose fault is it? Man, that's her fault, man. I'm just here hanging out, trying to have a good time. I wouldn't even really pay attention, man. But what happens? An adversarial relationship between the man and the woman is introduced for the first time. They ever blamed each other for anything before? No. Not only that, but then he looks at God and he's like, and bro, you gave her to me. So really, it's kind of your fault. 
I mean, I did eat the whole bag of M&Ms, but you ordered them. You know what I mean? Like, this is kind of your fault. There's a relationship fracturing that's happening here. Then, what? Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. It's not my fault either. It's his fault. Plenty of blame to go around. But here's what I want you to catch. When sin enters the world, it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with each other. There's only two people and now they're at odds with each other. D.A. Carson says, consumed by our own self-focus. It's the essence of sin. We desire now to dominate or manipulate others. Here, he says, is the beginning of fences, of rape, of greed, of malice, of nurtured bitterness, and of war. The relationship strife between the people that God created is born out of sin. Fourth thing, God's good world is broken by sin. The sin not only affects our relationship with God and our relationship with its others, the Bible teaches that it breaks the world. That this graffiti of sin over the shalom or peace of God's creation has unbelievable effects. Now we see some of those in the passage. Verse 16, he looks at the woman and he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Then to the man in verse 17, he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, the earth that I created. And then you see this phrase, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now there's a lot that we could unpack here, but I want you to notice pain and suffering enters into our world through sin. It's repeated. And it enters our world right at the points where God had blessed his people in Genesis 1 and 2. Family, the commandment to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, what is there? Pain in that. That the birth of new image bearers will be full of pain. Doesn't mean that it's going to be completely devoid of joy. It is. But it's no longer easy. Our work is affected our call to subdue the earth, to cultivate and keep it. There is now pain in the work of subduing the earth. This changes our relationship with our work and with the world around us and with providing. Previously, work had been a joy, a part of God's means, a part of what it means to be human, fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. Now it's marked by toil and trouble. Previously, God had provided everything that the man and the woman needed in the garden. Now, who's in charge of providing? You better get to work. And the effects of the fall then spiral out of control. I am notorious for mentioning media that probably I shouldn't, but I just can't think of another example. So you're going to come to me after the service and go, here's the better example, just like when I did it before. All right. But I want you to see what happens, Genesis 4 through 11. Some of you guys read this last week. It's like breaking bad. It is the de-evolution of people. Don't miss its purpose. It's full of weird stories, but don't miss what that text is trying to teach you. 
The blessing of family is now marred by sin. And what happens? Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. That's how much malice, animosity has entered into our world because of sin. Marriage, it's a good gift of God, right? The way God blessed his people. What happens in, in Genesis? Remember Genesis chapter 2, what happens? Adam meets Eve and what does he do? He breaks out in song. He writes a poem. It's like, this is bone of my bone and flesh in my flesh. He's so excited. And then we get to the end of Genesis chapter 5, and we meet another character named Lamech who writes another poem. And guess what his poem says? And now I got two wives, and somebody go tell them that I am violent and vengeful, and if they get out of line, they're going to have to face me. The complete de-evolution coming apart of humanity. Sex. A good gift from God in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we get this really weird story about the sons of God and the daughters of men having sex together. Everybody's like, what does that mean? That's so weird. And there's like 14 different theories about what's going on. But don't miss the purpose in the middle of trying to figure out the details. Here's what's going on. The writer of Genesis wants you to know that God's good gift of sex has been completely corrupted and twisted. And that the two become one flesh union of Genesis chapter 2 is now a place for human rebellion. Work. Get to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. And now men are using their work and technological advancement, their bricks, in order to build a city and a tower to what? Exalt themselves. Let's make a name for us. Subduing the earth, cultivating and keeping the earth isn't enough for them anymore. Now they want to build a tower to the heavens so they can rule there too. It is the complete undoing of what it means to be a person of God's good creation. Are some of these stories weird? Yes. But they're not random stories thrown in there. Their history given to you so you can see this is bad. And if we're honest, I see a little of myself here. I have experienced anger, frustration, malice, and hatred inside of my own family. I have experienced anger, Inside my own marriage, I have leveraged the good gift of sex in a way that shows corruption and twistedness, not according to God's good design. I have tried to create a name for myself to build up my ego and my pride. But In the middle of all of that, I want you to see something incredibly important. There is still good news. Talking to the man and woman in Genesis, or talking to the serpent, I'm sorry, in Genesis 3, 15. Just back up a little bit. Here's what God says to the serpent. Judges the serpent, just like he judges the man and the woman. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, This is important. Uh, That's singular. Her offspring, singular, all right? He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the first preaching of the gospel. 
a promise that God is going to do something about sin and death. That God is going to defeat evil and he's going to do it by a descendant or a offspring who's going to come from the woman. That's the plan. Or as much as we know about the plan here. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, For God came into the garden to tell them that in spite of everything they had done, Though he had to punish them for their rebellion, he was also providing a way of salvation and of deliverance. That was exactly why he came. Not merely to denounce them and to pass judgment upon them, but to bring the promise of the seed or the offspring of the woman and the conquest over the enemy who had misled and defeated them. Can you imagine? God, in the middle of their rebellion, shows up not just to deliver consequences for their actions. He does that. But even more that, more than that, shows up in grace to say, but I'm going to provide another way for you. This is not the end of your story. This is not where everything ends. God does not exit the scene. He doesn't leave the earth behind. It's corrupted and twisted. He doesn't say, I'm starting over again. I'm doing something different. I'm creating a new earth. No, no, no. He says, I'm here to deliver a message of good news as well. There's a lot of bad news, but there's some good news coming. That despite your rebellion and despite your sin, Despite this coup, despite that you have rejected my goodness, you've indicted my character, you have, you have doubted my word. Here's what I'm still promising to you. Somebody's coming who's going to defeat the serpent. Somebody's coming who's kicking death out of here. Somebody's going to show up. The promise is a promise for a rescue mission. Not a rescue from a natural disaster, but a rescue of our souls to rescue us from sin and death. And the rest of the story of Scripture hangs on really two things. An exposition of people. I'm going to give you a bunch of stories so you can see who you really are. And the promise of salvation. And God's saying, I'm the one who's going to do something about it. Now, I don't want to leave you on a cliffhanger this morning. So let's fast forward a little bit. Matthew chapter 1 introduces us to a brand new character in the story. A baby who's going to be born to a young woman named Mary. And his name, we learn, is... Jesus, he's also called Emmanuel, God with us. The offspring of the woman, Jesus shows up on the scene as the one chosen by God, the promised deliverer to rescue us from sin and death. Jesus is the one who trusts God's word. Jesus is the one that embodies God's goodness. And then Jesus, we find out, is the one who lays his life down for us on the cross, absorbing sin and death, the punishment, God's wrath for sin, for us in our place. Jesus is the rescuer of the story. He's the center point of the story. He's the one promised from Genesis 3.15. And God proves that three days after 
Jesus' death on the cross by raising him from the dead. So, there is very bad news for you this morning. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is a description of us. You and I. We've rejected God's word. We've indicted God's goodness. We've led a rebellion against God's authority in a variety of different ways. We're infected with the same sickness. But the good news of Genesis chapter 3 is for us today. Despite that, God sent his son Jesus to rescue you from sin. Provided a way for you and a way for me. And so really, we come down to just two responses today. And the two responses are the same for everybody here. First, confession. Today, what I'm going to ask you to do is just own up to what you've done. Be honest. We can't hide it. We've seen the example. They tried, right? We can't fix it. We just have to own up to it. All of us today, some of us who aren't Christians for the first time ever, we come just to confess and say, God, I see clearly now that I am a sinner. I'm actively involved in this rebellion. Here's a story of my life. I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to own up to it. Today's the day where we get to come clean. The second response then is to trust Christ. To go, but God, I know that you did something. You acted in history in order to save me, to rescue me from my sin by sending your son Jesus. And I'm going to trust him and him alone to save me. Another way we could think about it from the text is like I'm done with the fig leaves, trying to fix myself. I need you to fix me. Come to faith in Christ. So some of us who aren't believers who've never done that, that's the way you become a follower of Jesus. Confession of sin, this is who I am, honesty, owning up to it, and then trusting Christ to save you. For those of us who are Christians, we engage in those practices as well. Not to be resaved again, but to be reminded of God's goodness to us again. And so guess what we practice? Confession of sin, this is who I am. We're honest before God. And then a reminder of ourselves, hey, we've trusted Christ. I've been saved. I've been rescued. Whatever I've done, I'm not paying the penalty for that. I've been forgiven of that. So the response today is twofold. Man, would you come clean? Confession of sin. Would you trust Christ? Or remind yourself that you've trusted Christ. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.